Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at KingOKay, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Seven years ago, Jamie and I set out to answer a question. Can you integrate the worlds of therapy and performance so that they work together for the benefit of the client? We knew that if we could create something truly tangible that was inclusive instead of exclusive, it would allow you, the practitioner, to solve more problems, work with purpose instead of a cross-purpose, and in the end, you would earn more income by working smarter, not harder being fulfilled, and sought after for your solutions. After creating reconditioning and witnessing the change of so many professionals' lives and practices, we knew still there was one more ingredient we needed to make it a bulletproof process. For so many years, the brain and central nervous system were not clearly understood. There were a lot of theories and interesting practices, but the research just wasn't there to support the claims. But in the last 10 to 15 years, the world of neurology has come out of the laboratory into the world of real application. We knew this was the missing piece of our process, bringing the current practices of applied neurology into the empowering practice of reconditioning. Introducing Neuro-Reconditioning. The R-Pro series, four steps, one mission, to make you the neuro-reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. If you haven't started yet, it all starts out with our signature course, R1 Foundations. R1 is about learning the building blocks of assessing and improving functional movement through the lens of applied neurology. Maybe you've taken the first step, but that's a bit like being a freshman in a college. You've only just begun. R2 Designs empowers the process even further so you can assess and improve any human movement, understand the visual and vestibular system, and then integrate your work into performance programming and return to performance. Both of these courses are completely online experiences, so you can digest everything from the comfort of your home, hotel, plane, or office. But knowing that there is so much value in trying, doing, and living the experience with us by your side, our new R3 Collab is about you experiencing the full power of the process in a living lab. Troubleshooting your issues, fixing your problems in real time, and gaining real confidence in the process, as well as learning how the brain integrates and manages everything we do. Finally, our R4 mentorship is about exposing your knowledge, refining your approach, and learning through a powerful feedback process so you can be a reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information on all our course offerings, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out reconditioninghq.com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offerings. If maximum strength, injury prevention, and performance enhancement are important to you, Isofit's all-new Maximum Strength Kit is an absolute must add addition to your arsenal. Requiring less than seven square feet of space, Isofit's cost-saving design provides over 2,000 pounds of resistance for millions of isometric-based strength exercise. Made from cold-rolled Canadian steel, Isofit's Maximum Strength Kit is the world's first performance product dedicated to maximizing isometric strength, peak isometric force, and maximum isometric endurance strength. Since 2015, Isofit strength products have proudly strengthened and stabilized athletes in the NFL, NBA, NLB, NHL, and UFC. Pre-sale pricing is on now. 
Order yours today at www.isofitmsk.ca. That's isofit with a PH. Remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark to save 15% on your purchase. Shipping February 2022. Matrix Fitness has been the longest standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Greg Lawler, the Vice President of Business Development, reached out to me over a year and a half ago to say that he felt we had a common vision for human performance, something bigger than just helping people physically perform better. Their mission aligns with my mission, the idea that by creating the fertile soil for everyone and anyone to start or continue their personal performance journey, we will be here to help you do it. Matrix is one of the biggest brands in fitness and performance equipment today, but they are more than that. They are about helping you reach higher, explore your possibilities, and stay in the game, whatever your chosen path. Whatever you need, whether that is to buy equipment, rent equipment, or seek consultation, or simply recognize the possibilities, Greg and his team at Matrix are here to help you. You can find them at teamupwithmatrix.com today. Everyone struggles with the challenges of life on a daily basis. You're not alone. But if you're like most people, you feel alone, even when you're in a great relationship or a good work environment, because it's so hard to honestly reflect on your insecurities and obstacles with the people that you love or serve. After all, everyone wants to present themselves as being on it, prepared, ready to meet the challenges of life head on. But you know that's not how you always feel inside. Do you sometimes feel as though just having someone to bounce your ideas off of would be something you needed? Maybe you wish you just had someone who would listen to you so you could vent without the fear of judgment. The LYM Life Lab is about real mentorship. It's about me listening to you, connecting, empathizing, realizing, and reflecting so you can make better decisions, create your own change, and live a life of fulfillment and joy. It's not about living the perfect life. It's about living a better life. One you design, craft, explore, and experience within a safe place of objective perspective and honesty but no judgment. In the coming weeks, I will be opening this program up to an exclusive group of people, people who want to see real change in their lives and are willing to work towards real growth. This isn't a program for everyone, but if you're up for the challenge, you'll want to pay close attention to how to be included in this powerful experience. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for how you can be an instigator of your own change. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Brian Carroll. Brian is a world-class powerlifter with over two decades of record-setting powerlifting under his belt. A competitive powerlifter since 1999, Brian is one of the most accomplished lifters in the history of the sport. Having lifted at the elite world-class level since 2005, Brian has well over a decade of world-class lifting experience. He has totaled more than 10 times his body weight in three different classes and both bench-pressed and deadlift over 800 pounds in two different classes. In his career, he's totaled 2,500 over 20 times in two different weight classes. Most recently in October of 2020, Brian set the record for the highest squat of all time, regardless of weight class, lifting 1,306 pounds. The story of his all-time squat record is most impressive, not 
just for the unbelievable accomplishment it is, but that it came after a challenging recovery from a devastating back injury he suffered in 2012 that many experts said would likely end his career. Upon his return to the pinnacle of world-class lifting while 100% pain and symptom-free, he is now dedicated to helping others avoid the same mistakes that he made in the past through his own private group coaching and mentorship. Now much of his focus is on assessment, movement, and coaching with lifting skills and what he has taken away from his McGill certification to help people get better at lifting in life. He is also the father of twin girls and a husband to Rhea for the past 11 years. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I usually kind of rotate back and sort of understand where somebody came from. And so you, you grew up where and what are sort of your early influences as a kid? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, where I still, I live to this day. So I've, uh, I've stayed here my entire time. Uh, living. I started uh, playing baseball when I was a kid and I gravitated towards weightlifting to add size and strength. And so I got into that about middle school and then I got really serious with it come high school. And I gravitated away from the baseball and into the lifting. And uh, I, I looked at the, I read the Flex magazine, the muscle and fitness, muscular development, the weeder. I read, read them all. And initially I got into, you know, bodybuilding and then powerlifting pretty much took over. So Mm. I was always attracted to strength and power and all those types of things. If I go back, baseball was about strength and power with Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. I mean, we could, we could talk about that all day, but to stay on track, I always looked at, at strength and power is what was what I enjoyed and I was strong in high school. I think I benched, actually, I not think, but I know I benched 315 in 11th grade when I was 16. And uh, I, I just kind of took off from there and uh, fell in love with weight training. And it's led me down this path that I am now. And I'm, I'm able now to help people all over the world. I do consults with people for their back all over the world. I mean, just mm-hmm. last week, I, I worked with someone in Norway, in Vietnam, in Canada, in London, just all over the place. And then, you know, with the, with the state of the world right now, I can't see as many people in person, but I do have my own gym here where I do see people that are more local to Florida and the Southern States of the United States. So Jacksonville is where I grew up. It's where I live in uh, North Florida. And it's a beautiful time of year, especially right now. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the humidity hasn't started striking you too yet. What, uh, what did you, what's the essence of what you fell in love with when you f- say you fell in love with weightlifting and powerlifting? What did you fall in love with? Was it being strong? Was it the competition? Was it seeing what you could, you could do with your inner self in some sense? It, it was definitely the competition and it was being from a team background for so long playing baseball. I liked being only, I liked only depending on myself. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more of a selfish endeavor. It's not so much of the team camaraderie, although to be a successful power lifter, you have to have a good team around you. So all you have to do basically in lifting is you have to show up, you have to do what, what, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And it's good because you, you, you can blame other people, but it doesn't matter. You can only blame yourself. So I, I like to push myself to the limit and I always had in the back of the mind, in my mind, the last 20 years while I've competed, is I wanted to make sure that I got everything out of my body that I could. I wanted to go to another level that I didn't go with baseball. So that was my second uh, stab at a sport 
where I just wanted to make sure I got the absolute most out of it. So the drive to get bigger and stronger and knowing there's always another number that you can chase. There's always someone that's going to be better than you or someone right there on your heels. All of that really inspired me to really have tunnel vision for the last 20 years and, and make that my, my sole focus in my life a lot of the time. And then with that can come the dark side of strength training and lifting the, the, the mental struggles, of course, the physical struggles, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which led me down my path with Dr. Stuart McGill in 2013. But I, I, I love the ups and downs and uh, the highs that you get from accomplishing not just a world record. I've been lucky to sit about set about six all time world records in the squat over my 20 years, which so you have different lists in powerlifting. You have uh, world records for weight classes. You have world records for testing or non-tested. You have world records for age divisions and whatnot, um, equipment you're wearing. So I've been fortunate enough to hit all-time world records at 220, 242, 308, and super heavyweight. So there was always something bigger that I could chase. And it came to the point last year that I never really thought, coming back with Dr. McGill, I never thought that I'd squat over 1,200 pounds again because I'd squatted 1,200 pounds pre-Dr. McGill, but I had to keep my body weight down low. So for the longest time, I never even thought about squatting over 1,200 pounds again, and I ended up squatting over 1,300 pounds and saying that, okay, I've gotten enough out of my body. If I keep going to the well too many times, I'm going to get jacked up in some other way. I'm going to get hurt. So once I hit that number that I never really even considered hitting before, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. So that drive kept me going for all this time, but now it's time to do something else. So I'm assuming assuming your vocation now has become – powerlifting and everything that derives off of your teaching and mentorship. But what was your, your early vocation professionally? What were you doing on the side while you were trying to lift heavy things and, and make records? Well, along the way, I started coaching people uh, in the nineties, actually uh, not yeah. really knowing what I was doing. I started coaching people in the early two thousands. And then I started coaching more people in 2008 online with powerlifting. And then from 08 to 2013, when I met Dr. McGill, I started really adding a lot of tools to my tool belt with learning the McGill method and and being mentored by Dr. McGill the last eight and a half years. So along the way, I worked as a a trainer. I worked 10 years as a massage therapist. I worked in sales. And now I work for myself as a uh, consultant. So for back pain, I, I consult people for weight cuts, for nutrition, for strength training. I mean, the lion's share of my clients aren't necessarily competitive powerlifters. They're People that have hurt themselves while being weekend warriors in the gym, whether they get hooked into CrossFit or something like that, and they don't have the proper foundation to start doing squats and and snatches and cleans and deadlifts. And so I help get them on track. So that's kind of the niche that I've found the last few years because there's definitely a surplus of people that go out and are unprepared and have uh, subpar coaching, unfortunately, and then they get banged up. So I can help them get back on track, but I also work with a lot of top athletes, uh, athletes in the UFC, Major League Baseball, NFL. So uh, fortunately with my massage therapy background, working with Dr. McGill, knowing anatomy and physiology, not just from the massage therapy background, but from the lifting background. And then you add in Stu's uh, tutoring. Uh, I've got a, a pretty decent niche that if you had asked me 20 years ago, what I would have planned on doing or what I thought I would be doing, I probably thought I would have been in sales still. Because at that time, I still hadn't went to massage therapy school. So it's certainly been an interesting path. Very cool. 
I want to start to unpack like the journey and then the things that you recognize about yourself looking back now is sort of that retrospective in some sense. But what did being, you know, you, you obviously gravitated becoming a pro powerlifter very quickly and start doing things, you know, in a professional way. But what did mean, what did it mean to be a pro powerlifter back then? And what does it mean now in your viewpoint? What do you, what's changed in your viewpoint about, about being a professional powerlifter that you now provide to the people that you mentor that you didn't understand back then? That's a good question. I was talking to one of the, one of the guys that trains with me just the other day. And he has a D1 scholarship for the cross at a, at a major university. And we were going for a walk. We start a walk every training session and we get our 10 minute walk in. And so I asked him, I said, how's the, how's the cross going? And he goes, that's ah, okay. And he said some good things, said some okay things about it. And then I said, is it what you expected it to be when you got the D1 scholarship for academic and for lacrosse? Is it what you thought it would be? And he said, yes and no. So the reason why I tell you that story is because I can tell you that it's a lot of things that people don't think it is. And it is also what, what some people would, on the outside looking in would, would, would think. Um, but it's not all it's cracked up to be is what I'm getting at. So when I was younger, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a pro powerlifter. Well, what is a professional powerlifter? By definition, a pro powerlifter is once you exceed a certain total in your weight class. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to go to meets and start getting uh, cash prizes and all this stuff. You have to be a really good pro. So we can equate that to bodybuilding. There's a zillion pros in North America, Canada, United States, that are pro bodybuilders that have either won big shows or smaller shows or sucked or snuck in with submasters or masters and they're pros, but only the top 0.1% people are out there winning money. The one percenters mm-hmm. maybe are winning money. So it's the same thing for powerlifters. A lot of people think that they hit this magical total that bumps them into this league that's there's no ceiling on it. You have some mm-hmm. people that have hit 1,300 pound squats like myself, and then other people that are considered pros at 308 that have only hit a 950 squat. So there's a huge difference there. So number one, the people that are making money are only the top, top people. Number two, you're going to make your money with endorsements. So it isn't just about how you can lift. Can you be eloquent? Can you, can you sell products for people and not being a hack where you're just promoting things you don't believe in, but can you find products that you use and does the company want to have you endorse them for them? So those are a lot of things I didn't understand, honestly, when I was starting to turn pro, when I was in pro level in 03 and 04, when I was just starting to become good in the 05, uh, I didn't really have a, a viewpoint on what a pro powerlifter would be other than they can lift in money meets. But I, I had the perspective then to know that I wasn't going to win a bunch of money until I got a lot, lot better. Hmm. So. At the time, I was looking at it with a lot of uh, ignorance and uh, being very naive. I didn't really understand what it took to do it for so long. And if you'd have told me, you know, 15 years ago, all the things that I would go through and, you know, I wouldn't make very much money, obviously. But luckily, I was able to parlay my accomplishments and my skills that I've acquired over the years from winning, losing, getting hurt, getting better, you know, all those good things coming back. So I have a unique perspective on it, being around it for so long and having success in multiple classes, but it's not what people think just because mm-hmm. you hit a certain total, you're not going to be able to hang up your day job and, uh, and start powerlifting full time. Like some people think. So I understand that a little bit more now, but to be honest with you, I just jumped in it head first because it's all I had. I mean, I had a mm-hmm. job, I had my own place. I was good. I had my own car. I wasn't a derelict in life, but 
I, I just wanted to lift and I had no idea what it was going to take me. So that's mm-hmm. basically uh, how I could summarize that path. I had no idea. And here I am now. It's not what I thought it was going to be, but in some ways it's good that it wasn't that way. It's interesting. The, uh, I mean, the world that you've lived in um, has this kind of double-edged sword of, you know, it's a shared community where everybody's trying to achieve significant, you know, totals and, and lifts. And yet at the same time, there's a, a reticence in some ways to share uh, the secret sauce of your particular journey in some sense. So, you know, who were your early influencers and how were you influenced by them? And how did you discover what was the right thing to do to to create the 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 competitive success that you created? Was it in, intuitive in essence, or did you actually pull from people? And how did you pull from them? So I'll ask if it's okay. I'll answer the second part first, and I'll swing cool. back to the mentors. Yeah. Failing, mm-hmm. just doing it. Just you know, some people say. You know, I have people ask me, I've written a few books. I, I wrote, wrote Gift of Injury with Dr. McGill. I've written two other books on my own, 10, 20 Life and Cutting Weight. People ask me, how do you write a book? And I say, well, h- how do you write a blog? How do you write a post on Facebook? You start and you just write. You're going to mess up. You're going to scratch it out. So the thing that helped me succeed is, yes, it was a lot of intuition because I had a, a, a nice instinct for what worked for training and what didn't but a lot of it was just failing and just doing it not being afraid to just go out there and lift and i didn't have a lot of people that closely watched over with my powerlifting at first but i did have mentors when i was 16 a guy named skip sylvester uh, and then when i started getting really serious into powerlifting after i learned the basics from him he's the one that pushed me to do my first competition but he didn't baby me he told me here's where you need to compete here's how you wrap your knees so on and so forth uh, to be honest with you, the first time I jumped in, my, my first uh, bench press meet was in June of 99, and I was going there to help a friend, and I decided to jump in there that day. So I had no plans of going in to lift. I just saw it, and I said, okay, I'm going to go and lift. And I lifted raw that day, and I think I benched 325 and uh, got second place, and I was kind of hooked that day. But Skip Sylvester was someone I met at the local gym that kind of took me under his wing he helped me with my first bodybuilding show. I realized that I didn't like that that much. I didn't like the subjective um, subjective flavor to the whole deal where I don't like your tan. I don't like your mustache. I don't like your bald head. I don't like your long hair. Yeah, it's one of those things. Your arms are too long. Like a lot of things, it's it's completely all over the place. They're just like judging is right now with wellness and figure and bikini and all that stuff. So I realized quickly I didn't like bodybuilding, and so he helped me figure out what I needed to do to start powerlifting. Again, he didn't baby me. So Skip Sylvester was someone, when I joined Bailey's gym in 1997, he took me under his wing. He showed me the basics, stick with barbell, compound movements, and then do your assistance work at the end. But overhead press, squat, bench, and deadlift, that's where you're going to build your mass, especially being a teenager full of growth hormone and testosterone. And then from there, a big one was Adam Driggers when I started competing seriously and joined his team in 2003 that's when everything kind of went to the wayside as far as my priorities and I went with my head down and started powerlifting with a lot of like-minded people and so he helped me have a home to train and I, I watched his work ethic and he trained hard every time he trained and uh, he didn't make excuses he showed up on Christmas Eve Thanksgiving we trained that's all we need that's all we need that's all we knew to do at the time is just train and it's a little bit different now where people have excuses and they don't want to train. And 
you know, it's just a different mentality that people have now. And I'm not saying what we did was right or the only way to do it, but that's the way we did it. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit more hardcore back then. Can you, I was listening to your podcast that you shared with me with Dave Tate. And I, I was just curious because it, it, it's a sport I've watched peripherally, but I don't know the ins and outs of it. And I found it interesting when you guys talked a little bit about the team around you and you mentioned it earlier and your, and your partner, et cetera. What is that? What is that for the listener who is not deep in powerlifting? What does that mean? The team around you and how does that influence your success? Well, when you have, when you have a powerlifting gym, you need multiple people there for the morale. You need people to help spot you, to get you ready, to wrap your knees or to pull the, the monolift hooks. For those that don't know what a monolift is, it's a squat stand that allows you to stay in place and squat instead of traditionally walking it out. So you need people to help operate the machinery, help you, uh, you know, hand off on the bench and such. And it's important to have people that have your back and believe in you and bring positive mojo and momentum and um, encouragement that, that help you do this because doing it by yourself, some people do it by themselves. Now I don't see how they do it, but mm-hmm. having a team that believes in you and, and surrounds you with positivity and uh, gives you what you need. So for instance, when I went up to squat the 1300 pounds last uh, year, I didn't need to worry about, oh, where am I going to get my snacks from at Walmart? They had people go out and get my snacks for me. They had all my stuff ready for me. All I had to do was lift. If you're worried about making sure your attempt is put in correctly, you know, you have to go do it. And you're worried about, you know, your rack height. So you don't take the bar to the rack too low or too high. And you're worried about having your drinks and someone to remind you to stay focused. If you're doing all that on your own, that means there's certain things that you're not able to focus on a hundred percent, like getting the lift, being tight, walking through mentally before you even do the lift, visualizing what you're going to do, what the bar is going to feel like when you pick it up, all those things you're distracted from. Now for some people, a distraction can be good, but for me, I can't be bothered with that stuff. So I need to have a hundred percent focus on what I'm doing. Cause I know that I could get seriously hurt. Um, I could even die. I could get all, all, all kinds of, um, injured permanently by lifting those types of weights. So when you have people that you believe in and you trust them and you know, they're going to do what you need, it's so important, but how do you, how do you accomplish that? You train in the gym like that, just like you do in the meet. That way you've had plenty of dry runs all throughout the training cycle. Then you get there for the meet and it's just time to do it. There's no more thinking. It's already automatic. So Mm. you have to be around people that are willing to dedicate themselves, but in turn, you have to give that back to them when it's their turn to lift, no matter what their level is, you know, at times I've lifted with really, really high level lifters that were on a world-class and other times there's only a couple world-class lifters. And a lot of them were newer people. It doesn't necessarily matter the level of lifter that you're training with. It matters their dedication, them showing them uh, themselves up on time, being focused, not being on their phones, not playing on Instagram, not giggling with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, you know, in the corner, you know, messaging. So it's all about the focus and uh, eliminating distractions. So the team around you is extremely important. You need the camaraderie, you know, Mm -hmm. but they can't do it for you. They can't lift the weight for you. They should be able to help you with everything else except for you simply focusing on lifting the weight. And, And that's what my team's been able to do for me. Awesome. So let's start back and unpack this incremental sort of journey towards your back injury. So what are you, when you look back, 
uh, before meeting Stu, before having the current recognition, but looking back with today's lens, what were you doing wrong or incorrectly, or what was your approach that you, that needed being fixed that was walking you slowly to a place where you were going to potentially lose the ability to, to lift big weights anymore? And, and at that point, when I saw Stu, I'd lost the ability to, to maintain any type of uh, resilience in day-to-day, and that was caused from poor motor patterns. The way I moved every day was just sloppy. It was unprofessional. And uh, I was causing my pain all day, every day with the way I stooped down. I, I bent over into flexion. I sat for too long. I, I let myself get too heavy. I didn't have proper rest periods during my lifting time. So I was a, a pretty bad offender at a bunch of different levels that ended up causing me to have a serious back injury. I wasn't giving myself proper times of rest, and then I wasn't doing the proper core exercises. Uh, exercises are, are should be prescribed to people depending on where they are, where they're going, what they're trying to do, their their specialties, their limitations. You know, all those things have to be considered because we're all built different, and we all have different goals. So, mm. unfortunately, I didn't have the understanding like I do now to know that some exercises are going to be good for somebody. That that same exercise that helps someone hit a world record could be someone's career-ending exercise. It's it's all about fitting the demands for the sport and your particular body type and injury history. And I was using exercises like weighted sit-ups and, and hyperextensions, thinking it was going to cure my back pain. Why? Because that's what you see everywhere. Stretch in, stretch your back pain out. So I was doing that. Foam roll your back pain out. So I was doing that. Um, lift heavy and do reverse hypers. I was doing all that. So finally. I got to a point after seeing doctors and and having surgery consults and getting epidurals and facet injections and nerve root blocks. Eventually I got to a point I need, I need someone that works with top athletes, surgery and injected me. All those things does not look like a path that's going to help me get back on the horse. So I finally reached out to Dr. McGill and he cleaned up a lot of those things almost immediately. Hmm. Awesome. I also want to sort of, begin to unpack maybe what I call your mindset journey in some sense, because I think being, you know, Stu and I have a a great mutual respect for one another. Uh, I'm sort of of the same ilk as him um, rebuilding people. That's kind of my industry specification in some essence, but um, you know, there's a part of pain that is driven by your mind. And there's a part of pain that's driven by the mechanical dysfunction that's going on in, in the system. And, I, and, you know, it was interesting listening to you talk to Dave about, you know, the early driver in you of, of, you know, what, whether you would call it rage or, um, uh, hate of somebody else or being pissed off or somebody beating you, et cetera. And, and the energizing of that and how that, you know, contributes to your mindset and, and overall sort of energy. And it sounds like in the time that you went through this process with Stu, you also sort of had an epiphany around mindset and how you approach things and how you approach relationships, et cetera. Is that true or false? And how do you think that contributed to the success of your healing journey? It's true. Uh, and I still use the past failures and frustration to fuel my uh, accelerations forward, but I had to mind it and be a little bit more aware of the dark side that helps push you. Um, when I went to see Dr. McGill in May of 2013, I went in as a complete beginner. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I've hit multiple world records on my own, but I can't figure this out on my own. No matter what he tells me, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to follow it to a T. 
And so I went in there as a humble beginner. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons why I got better is because I, uh, I just turned it over to him Mm. and um, just let him do his thing and come to find out I was causing a lot of my own pain with, with the way I moved and uh, you know, moving poorly over and over and lifting with bad form sometimes and muscling through it. And that mentality of just pushing through it, like you hit on a minute ago was part of the reason why I was hurt Mm -hmm. because I always wanted to drive. I always wanted to beat people. I always wanted to be my best. I didn't want to look back and say, "Ah, I didn't quite, you know, put everything, you know, in like I could have, I wasn't quite all in, or I didn't try this. I didn't try that. So the mentality of meeting Dr. McGill and getting a second chance and then lifting for another seven years after that, it really helped me slow down, appreciate the time that I have while I'm lifting again. I didn't take it for granted. And it just, it humbled me a great deal starting over, going from squatting 1147 in March, seeing in March of 13, seeing him in May, and then not lifting for months and months, only doing walking, only doing suitcase carries and the big three and moving well. And when I started over again, when it was time, I started over with the, the, the bare bar of 55 pounds. When I started benching again, it was just the bar, the squat bar, the deadlift bar. And so that humbled me. And, and I had to work hard to get back to where I was and beyond. And it took a long time to do it. So it gave me a new perspective to understand that things could be taken away from you uh, very quickly, but also to seize the moment. So mm-hmm. I think I, I dialed in my my navigation a little bit better and I used the same fire, but I didn't let it destroy me. I, I used it when it was appropriate. And then uh, I got better at turning it off when I wasn't pushing towards a meet or doing a meet. But <laughs> as any, as anyone will tell you, doing that for a long time, it will, will start to uh, wear you out for sure. Mm-hmm. The mental aspect more than anything physically, uh, I'm good. I mean, I tore my bicep off last year, right before the squat. But other than that, my body feels good. I don't have day-to-day pain. I get achy sometimes, but that's anybody that's 40 years old that's done, you know, any any type of sport, much less 20 plus years of powerlifting. So I'm I'm thankful that that I don't have a ton of aches and pains, but mentally is that's that's the point where I, I, I had the hardest time. And now that I have mm-hmm. twin girls, it's just time to to move on and and, and change my entire mindset and help other people. Mm-hmm. But that anger has to be there. That, that fire has to be there because if you go in half step and, and you go in lackadaisical or not fiery, you're going to get crushed and you're not going to be competitive either. Hmm. Yeah. It can be a bit of a double-edged sword at times, but uh, I want to impact that a little bit more as we go along here. But um, I, I want for the listener to understand, and I'd like to understand too, um, you know, when you're an elite athlete like you are and were at that time, um, you know, you're, there's a lot of question marks on, on, you know, what's happening to me and who should I trust? And so one, how do you, how do you come upon Stu? And then two, what informs you to trust Stu and, and, and do what you did because giving yourself to him in essence and his authority, um, is not an easy thing for an elite athlete. You, you have, you're going through a lot of question marks about, well, am I going to be, what am I going to come out the other side looking like? And, and how is this going to affect me? Especially when you have to take time off in your type of sport, there's all these kinds of things I'm sure spinning in your head about, uh, I'm going to lose all, all my strength. I'm going to lose all my weight. I'm, I'm, you know, am I going to be able to pack this back on in this body? Is this going to work out? How do you, how did you, what influenced you to trust him? 
and to make that 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 leap of faith. Well, I had failed so many times on my own going to see local people and doing the injections and the physical therapy, which didn't get me anywhere. And so it was kind of like my last hope. You know, I talked to two surgeons, one neurosurgeon, one orthopedic, and both of them said that I'd never be out of pain Hmm. and that I'd never lift again. And so when I got to Dr. McGill, after we did the assessment for hours, he told me that I was done. He told me I was Hmm. done lifting. So there wasn't a bunch of uh, happy-go-lucky exchanges there other than he thought he could get me out of pain. Hmm. So then I countered back and said, okay, well, you said you think you get me out of pain. Let's work to get out of pain. And I looked at him and looked at my wife and I said, just to let you know, I'm going to get back to lifting again. He goes, well, first things first, who knows, maybe you're right. Maybe we end up writing a book about it and (laughs) we ended up writing a book about it. But specifically, how did I do it? I took the same amount of effort that got me my first all-time world record being the lightest guy to squat a thousand pounds in 2006, the same that helped me get the all-time world record in 2011 the same that helped me get the four all-time world records last October, that same focus, that same tunnel vision is what I applied when I saw Dr. McGill, but I put the same emphasis on my movement patterns, on me not laying, sitting, standing too long, on me doing my core work, on me holding back and not doing anything I'm not supposed to. So it was the same mindset. It was just channeled differently. So that same Mm -hmm. focus of being like a bulldog, barreling ahead no matter what, a pit bull, that's the same, it's the same mentality that's helped tear me apart at times, helped me stay on track, no mm-hmm. matter what anyone said. Now, keep in mind, I was in a gym full of, of people that were lifting heavy at the time. They're giving me crap. You know, they're, they're messing with me. They, they think I'm done. I had some people move into town just to train with us. And here I am broken doing bird dogs on the ground when they think I'm going to come and I'm going to train with Brian. We're going to squat 1200 pounds. And there I am starting over. But there's people that saw me day in and day out, moving well, holding back, not giving in to being goaded into lifting or anything. So it was the, it was the mindset of knowing that I'd failed on my own, knowing that I know Dr. McGill is the best at what he does. And there's just no, that this is the way that it has to be. So I put hundred percent faith in him and put my, all my uh, eggs in one basket. Now there is, there are a set of questions that, that I like to use. And with Dave Tate, you mentioned the podcast a minute ago, there's six questions and roughly just going through them quickly. Whenever you have someone that you're thinking about utilizing as a consultant or a coach or a mentor, there's six questions that you can ask yourself. And, and I've kind of like made these my own a little bit, but he gets the credit for coming up with them. <laughs> but you ask yourself, who, who is this person's mentors? What have they done? What's their education? Who have they helped? Do they practice what they preach? And uh, there's another one, you know, about have they been able to make people better than themselves or, or, mm-hmm. or something along those lines? So you can, if you can answer about four of those questions, good or bad, you can know a lot about the person you're working with. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about their education, okay? It's not just about what they've done. No, but both of those do matter in a certain extent. Who have they helped? Who have they made really good? Those things also matter too. And of course, who are their mentors? You know, you need to look at all those things. And I was able to find those things out very easily about Dr. McGill because they're they're apparent all over the place. And when I got to talk to him a little bit more, of course, the confidence grew. So he showed me, I was able to buy in with Dr. McGill because he showed me right away how to create my pain, how to take it away, how to create it, how to take it away. And no one had ever shown me that before. 
So the longer that I was with them, the more I bought into it. And by the time I left and went home, I was well on my way to recovering and moving well and, and buying into the the McGill method and, and just letting my pain settle, not rushing to get back to lifting, just doing one day at a time. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, I, I from that uh, Tate interview, I thought it was uh, it was. It was a reflection on every, um, I would call it performance or athletic culture that there's always, uh, guys like to test one another and push each other a little bit and, and chirp each other. Um, and, and, and the gym is no different than that. And so you're in the midst of doing a bunch of things that nobody's ever seen before, or everybody thinks is, you know, I remember the, uh, when I first started working with a bunch of bobsledders with, uh, team Canada and uh, they would you know we would do some of these adjunct exercises and they always like to call them the fluff exercises right, right. <laughs> how, how did you how did you manage the chirping and and effectively how has your journey and your success in that journey influenced those around you seeing what you've what you actually achieved doing some of that adjunct work there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of power lifters eight years ago, eight and a half years ago doing this. Uh, McGill was obviously world renowned, but not so much in the powerlifting world. And so when I started doing these things, some people had heard of McGill if they had uh, you know degrees in um, kinesiology or they were chiropractors, they'd heard of them, but they hadn't. So it was like a new element for a lot of people, like wondering what the hell I was doing. So that helped people seeing my entire journey over the last eight and a half years is really helped bolster my reputation because they saw that I'm a, I'm about what I talked about back then. And I still live it. Um, but the, the, the chirping, it's fun to do. Uh, I have thick skin because I've trained with people like that for a long, long time. You know, we, we get on each other and we rag each other and stuff. I grew up doing it with my friends. Hmm. You can't let people determine your direction. That's the thing, whether they're being ruthless or they're just being, you know, a buddy and like, like you said, chirping, you can't let them determine your path, regardless whether they're your enemy or your friend, you've got to know where you need to go regardless. So a lot of the times people would get on my nerves, but I would just stay focused. Hmm. Use that, use that fire to keep you focused. You know, I used to have uh, conversations with people and I might, I might've even talked about this on one of Dave's podcasts, but when people let others motivate them to go do something else. You'll never go do this. You'll never go hit a baseball 400 feet, Michael Jordan. I'm going to show you, well, how is that being true to yourself when you just run around trying to disprove everyone wrong? What is it Mm. that you want to do yourself? Mm. Not what other people are saying you should do. What is it that you want to do? Okay. Mm. I want to get back to powerlifting. I don't care what other people have to say. I don't care if they say this or say that. Let's just see what happens in a couple of years when I'm back and I'm better than ever and I'm hitting records. That was my focus at that time. But also it was a learning experience because I wasn't 100% confident that I was going to get back there on the inside, on the outside. I was like, Nope, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back. So it was one of those things that I knew my pain was winding down, but the first time I pulled 315 again, that's 30% of my best deadlift 800 or whatever you want to call it. And it didn't move. Well, I was having to fake it until I made it because Mm. that's a long way away, but Mm. I just kept plugging away, kept plugging away. And people saw I got better and better and better. And most importantly, they weren't hearing me complain about my back. So they believed it. Mm. Yeah. I I wanted to, um, 
I don't even know if you can put it into words, but when you're, when those, those early days, when you're starting again, in essence, like how does somebody, it's almost the same question that you ask somebody who's about, who's, who's looking at that Mount Everest and they're standing at base camp. And, and there's this sense that, holy geez, I've got to climb this mountain and you're back down at, you know, numbers like three and 400 pounds where you're working your way to, you know, 1300 pounds. What is, <laughs> that's, that's like, I don't even think most people actually understand what that means, but it means it's, it's almost, it's unfathomable. It really is like a, the concept of climbing Mount Everest. How, how do you even start to recognize this is possible because you did it before? Quick break here. And we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. The reconditioning process is powerful, it's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. ReconditioningHQ.com has released the R-Pro series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. The first step is R1 Foundations, and it's recently been turbocharged with the injection of applied neurology. We are extremely excited about what this new capacity is going to do to your ability to solve problems and serve your client. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to reconditioninghq.com and take advantage of our free five hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. Do you let $100,000 walk out of your rehab business every year? If you're like most businesses, you do. Operating your business under a fix or release model drives your client revenue out the door. For less than $10 per day, Isofit's line of strength products can change your revolving door of lost revenue into a flourishing rehab prevention and performance training business. Call them at 1-866-2-ISOFIT. I-S-O-P-H-I-T, and strengthen your rehab business bottom line today. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness and performance equipment with over 7,000 employees worldwide. Their expertise and capacity in this world are exceptional, with over 500 products that cater to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. But they want to do more than provide product. They want to help you thrive as a performance professional or business person. They are here to help. Whatever your problem might be, they are ready and willing to help you find solutions. Greg Lawler and his team at Matrix can be contacted at teamupwithmatrix.com. And believe me when I say this, they will make a difference in your success. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Yeah, it's like eating a whale one bite at a time. Yeah. So it, it, it was one of those things that when I got to 315 and 405 again, I was elated because I wasn't lifting for a while and I had pain before. So I got back to the bar and 135, 225. I just stayed focused, man. And that was the, the that same frustration that I had about not being where I needed to be. I channeled it into every day, plugging away, getting a little bit better, getting a little bit better. And um, it's, it's, it was, it was difficult at times. I got discouraged some days, um, but I just kept getting back on the horse because I knew I'd be back. So um it, it, it's, you got to be determined and you got to be headstrong and yeah, you're looking up and you're like, man, I, I, I'm so far away from where I need to be. But at the same time I was pain-free. So I knew the sky was the limit. If I could continue to adapt, continue to build the foundation broader and taller that I would get back to where I needed to. Um, and I just, I just stayed the path. And whenever I felt a little discouraged or had questions, 
I'd call Dr. McGill. We'd talk about it. And, uh, you know, my, my, my wife was a great encourager. She saw how much better I'd gotten, how I wasn't complaining about my back. So she was my number one supporter during this time. And um, it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns. It was difficult. But the, the hardest part was making up my mind that I was going to listen to Dr. McGill in May of 2013. Once I made that decision, the rest of it was just kind of part of the process. That was the mm-hmm. hardest part. I'm going to read something to you. This is a book called The Day You Were Born. It's written by a woman named Linda Joyce, who's an astrologer who combined numerology with astrology. And I found this book about uh, almost 20 years ago now, and it really uh, struck me that each, each of the birth dates, she combines numerology with astrology and gives you your fundamental purpose. And after I read it, uh, yours, I was like, wow, this strikes me after listening to your interview and, and again today. So you're a Leo four born July 31st, correct? Before I start reading this. So to use your versatility, this is your purpose to use your versatility and your catalytic nature to separate from security and manifest your dreams in the world to change the lives of all you meet to change the world through your ideas, actions, and unique ability to destroy and rebuild within the system. Man can starve from a lack of self-realization as much as they can from a lack of bread. Richard Wright, native son. The sun, the sun four dynamic brings the power to shatter opposition through the incredible Credible ability to use whatever is available. Life seems like a series of uncontrollable events. Leo fours love dodging debris. They are attracted to tension and chaos. If it's not avail- available, they know how to create it. They are catalysts and the center of other people's lives. Either through their quiet courage or their outspoken individualism, they give others strength and insight. Struggle and discipline have toughened the Leo four. In fact, this dynamic is so strong it can be dangerous if it's handled improperly. Without sensitivity and a desire to contribute something to mankind, Leo fours can be hard, cruel, and cold, believing they have all the answers to their their lives and others. And yours, their ingenious approach to life makes them inventors. They create what they need as they go along. Leo fours must not forget that boundaries help accomplish goals. They must embrace the discipline, and when faced with impossible odds, they should tackle the little stuff first. They'll be stronger when a few obstacles are out of the way. The roller coaster of life will always be there. Leo Fours should know that the ups and downs teach them just how good they are when the adrenaline's flowing. Yeah, and and can definitely rub people wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is July thirtieth, so you guys uh, share a close birthday. Yeah, yep, I do know that. Very cool. Um, That's so, interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, the reason I bought the book, actually, I tell this story sometimes after I read it, but uh, I had gone through my second divorce and I found I always liked astrology. I wasn't a, a massive believer in it, but I picked up this book and I started reading it. And I'd always had my favorite saying taped to the top of my desktop, which is some men see things as they are and say why I dream things that never were and say why not. So this is taped to my desktop for a good 10 years. And I pick up this book and I go to December 3rd, Sag 3, and I read my purpose. And I'm like, wow, that really resonates. And the saying it has, because she has a saying in each one was some men see things as they are, say why I dream things that never were and say, why not? So I'm like, well, I got to buy this book. And so for every guest I have, I always read that, but uh, that struck me. It sounded very much like the man that uh, I was listening to. So very cool. That is, that's, uh, that's very interesting to uh, hear that. And yeah, there's a lot there, but definitely if I don't have a path to keep me on, I can destroy myself. Absolutely. 
Mm. And, and anything in my path, unfortunately. If I don't stay on the right path, that path is very detrimental. I want to unpack, uh, you know, becoming a husband and then becoming a father and how those things have influenced you over time. Obviously, you've been married to your wife, Rhea, for 11 years. Like, how has she been the yin to your yang or support system? And maybe sometimes how has she challenged you to, um, you know, to maybe not give up or to give up or to change tact or whatever it's been in your, in your situation as you've gone along together. So she came into the powerlifting when I was, you know, in the middle of kind of getting really good and uh, winning, winning titles and everything. So she came in when I basically told her that, you know, this is my number one and, you know, you'll basically, you know, like a jerk, mid twenties <laughs> jerk said, this is my priority, you know, nothing else matters really. And she's like, okay, you know, whatever. And she traveled with me to me. She cut weight with me in the sauna. I mean, she's been there and the good, bad, the ugly during my injury. And she's good because I'm the creative type. She's the organized type. You don't have a lot of creativity with the organization for whatever reason. It's hard. There are some people I know that are super creative and they can just boom, 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 put things away as they create me. It's, it's just not me. I can create. I need someone organizing it for me as I create. Mm-hmm. She's the person that's organized and labeling the pantry and labeling the house, you know, the, the, the closets and, the, and everything. So it's a perfect fit because she's the passive one. She's the one that's more even keel. I'm the more aggressive one. So we balance mm-hmm. each other out. Sometimes she needs to be a little bit more aggressive and that rubs off on her from me and then vice versa. I need to be more passive sometimes and shut my mouth. And I've learned from her to back off back off mm. and, you know, maybe just let things go. She's really good with ignoring, like ignoring, uh, my, my, one of my mentors one time told me it's a very simple phrase, but I never like put this into practice. You don't have to swing at every pitch. Meaning I used to think I used to have to react to people. If they sent me a text message or an email, or they said something to me, there's nothing wrong with just ignoring something if you don't think it even deserves a response hmm. or if it's not a fair question or if it's an attack or something. She's good. Like when we've been fighting at times, she just ignores me and then it makes it go away. It makes it literally makes it go away when she just ignores me because then I don't have ammo to come back with. So I've learned over the years not swinging at every pitch from her and just knowing that you don't always have to react to someone. You can just let it go. But in my DNA, I always thought I had to react. I have to give you my reaction. I have to tell you what I think to what you said or what you did. But it's so much easier just living in your own skin when you realize you don't have to react to everyone. You can just ignore people. Um, so she's helped me see that. That's that's brought out a lot of good in me, just being more calm, being more patient, seeing the good in people more instead of, you know, sometimes the bad jumps out at you, unfortunately. Um, and, and you just want to focus on that with people. But she's been a great great uh, yin to my yang or, or however you want to put that. Mm. And, uh, you know, she's an entrepreneur as well. She's uh, been in real estate since 2008 when the bottom fell out of the, the world at that point, at least in the United States with the real estate market. So she got in when she could learn and I watched her do this, build her way up and work up. And, you know, by 2012 or so, she was killing it in real estate after four years of struggling and learning and watching her be so diligent. Her work mm. ethic is what has inspired me more than anything, other than, you know, her being my wife and, you know, the the other attributes she has that, that, are, that are great, being sweet and everything. But her work ethic has shown, like, her organization and work ethic 
makes me want to strive to be more organized and more empathetic and patient is going back to what you said. I can lack empathy at times, almost being a sociopath when I'm focused on something, I'm focused and focused and focused, get out of my way. I don't care about that. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me about your stuff that doesn't matter right now. So it's good that I'm stepping away from that type of myopic focus when I have babies involved because they need to come. The wife is first the babies are second. The powerlifting and the lifting and all that BS has to come a way distant third or fourth. And so mm. it was a good time for me to step away as the babies are coming in. That aggressive mindset has to go away. This has to be gone. I need to be a patient, loving dad that loves his little girls. I got to be there for my little girls. And so that's number one priority. And it's changed me a lot seeing the trajectory that I could have been on if I decided, hell, I want to compete for another five or seven years. Well, people are dropping dead bodybuilding right now. There's so many people dropping dead um, that, that their, their hearts are given out on them being big for a long time. The heart doesn't work as a pump on big people for a long time. It gives out, unfortunately. So I think that just like the wake up call that I had with Dr. McGill, when I decided I need to make some changes, I dropped some weight at the time. I went down a weight class, had success there. This was my next wake up call. Thankfully it wasn't an injury, but it's like, okay, you got that big squat. You're a father now of twin girls. The world is upside down and sideways right now. I think it's a good time to really focus on what's important, not chase these world records. It's not going to better your life in any way anymore. I've made my name for myself. It's time to focus on my little girls and be there with them and be present with them mentally instead of checked out thinking about my workout because I took my caffeine an hour ago and I'm ready to go. I'm just going through the motions. So I caught myself some of the time training for that last meet, going through the motions of just being there with them just so I could say I did it and then go out and train and then blow off steam there and then come, you know, it's a whole thing when you're trying to lift those types of weights and it's not conducive for in my situation with my focus to being a, a good father and a, and a good lifter at the same time. So it was an easy choice for me. Now, hmm. let me say one more thing. If you, if you're okay with it. Yeah. Um, my wife never said, Hey, dumbass, you need to quit powerlifting. You have two daughters here. It hmm. was nothing like that. She just knew that when I was ready to hang it up and, and walk away, that I'd be done instead of talking about it. I think I'm going to be done. I think I'm going to be done. I said that for years and then the meat goes away. And then I'm like, I want to do more. I want to do more. I can do more. You know, I got this new plan. You know, you're talking about the creativity. I got a new plan. I'm going to get back on the path that I'm going to do this. I did have it one more time. I got the 1300 pound squat. Enough is enough. Leave well enough alone, right? It's good enough. Now I'm focusing on the babies. She didn't have to make me, you need to, you know, you need to step away. So that's another compliment of my wife. She knew that when I was ready to step away, I would step away at the right time. And now it's time to focus on the baby. So hmm. I, I got to give her credit for not pressuring me because it probably would have pushed me back into lifting instead of just hmm. letting her make my decision. The week of the meet, I said, you know what? The week of leading up to the meet, I said, I have a really good feeling about this weekend, but I think this is it. I think I'm done. I think this is the last time I want to go into a meet with all the preparation, all the traveling and all that stuff. We drove 10 hours with the babies to get to the meet. I went four for four on the squat, no pain, got the records, drove back home 10 hours. And I said, you know what? After I get bicep surgery on Tuesday, because I had surgery on Tuesday, I lifted on Saturday. After the surgery, going into the surgery, I said, you know what? I'm done. 
No one needs to talk to me about it. No one needs to give me my pros and cons, do my Benjamin Franklin. No, I'm, I'm just done. I, I know in my heart I'm done. And I, I thank God that she didn't push me to come to that decision because whenever you have a force to walk away from, from training or from sport or whatever, there's always, you're always going to gravitate back toward it unless you're truly done. Hmm. Unpack that just a little bit for me, you know, to inform, because I have a, a diverse listening group and some of them are performance athletes at the highest level too. And I'm just kind of, you know, every great athlete comes to a place where they, they have to choose to retire. And sometimes they don't choose, it chooses it for for them. Um, you almost ran into that uh, back in 2012. And now later on, you're actually making that choice for yourself. Um and I, and you kind of just unpacked part of it, but I'm kind of curious as you're making that decision, is there a moment after you've said I'm done that you, you question it? And what are some of the questions that you sort of answer for yourself to, to inform yourself that it's the right decision for you? Well, I've always wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be a great dad, a great husband, successful in business, helping people get their life back on track with their back pain, whatever it may be. But another thing that helped me decide that I no longer needed to compete is because it would take away from my work. I had a high demand for people to see me, to consult them. And when I'm in the last five weeks of a competition phase, I do the minimum each day. I might not take on as much as I could because my mental my, 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 my mindset, my, my mental capacity is so focused. It's lower than it should be. And, and, and I realized that over time and it was costing me in my wallet competing was ended up costing me money, regardless of the money that I can win at meets. It was coming out. So it made me hurt in the pocketbook a little bit. So I still would have a little inkling of a time where I would think, Oh, it would be nice if I could come back and reset my record. I could do this or that. But the desire to get back and to do the things that I know I need to do to get there, the sacrifices that I'm making for sure. And potentially those things are right in front of my face. When I look at my daughters every morning and it's no comparison, it's like loving and seeing my daughters and and doing everything I can to be there for them. Now I can't control what I've done to my body, what kind of condition I might be in now, which I'm, I'm healthy. I'm relatively healthy being 40 years old and competing for 22 years. With that said, I'm not going to act like I didn't put miles and damage to my body. Hmm. I want to mitigate whatever I've done. And I don't want to further build upon that with blood pressure issues. I mean, God knows what your blood pressure is in the bottom of a thousand pound squat or 12 or 1300 pound squat. It's not good. And it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say, wow, I wasn't very surprised that, you know, he blew a gasket while he was squatting because he was purple. So I weigh those things out in my mind if it briefly kind of glimmers. And I say, man, what I could do this, but I don't want to put in the work and I don't want to take myself away from the family. So that's the biggest thing. And mentally having to go and do all those things again, babies and wife aside, Reagan and Riley aside, Rhea aside, I don't want to put myself through it because I don't like how I get myself. I dislike myself so much because I'm so focused I did it for so long. I'm good with everything being where it is. And I don't really look forward to, I don't look forward to getting back and getting back in the trenches and going there mentally again and timing my supplements and my food and and everything being completely revolving around that. I don't miss that at all. So 
I can say if it was just a health thing where I was worried about my health overall, but I didn't, I did have the desire to push. It'd be a lot, a lot more difficult for me to walk away. But just when you know, you know, the timing's just right for me to walk away and, and go to the, 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 the next thing, which is going to be focusing more on helping other people, writing more, doing more videos to help people, consulting more. But I tell you, if it had been a couple of years ago and I didn't get that big squat and I just would have walked away, I can tell you it's a lot easier to walk away doing something you want to do, kind of like Peyton Manning did with you. He won that second Super Bowl with Denver and walked away than it would have been, you know, having a subpar performance and walking away. I think the, the stars were all aligned for me to walk away that time. So I'm actually good with it. Now, there's going to be times where someone's going to challenge me or I'm going to see some up-and-comer do something. But I, I, I've got my I've got the, my, my mindset at this point where I just don't worry about that. Let, let's let the new guys do what they do. Let me help them if I can. But also something that's helping me is just taking a little bit of a step back from the powerlifting scene and just kind of seeing it for what it is. It's kind of a mess a lot of the time. Uh, all, all the sports are kind of a mess if you look at them for what they are and the bickering and the crap on social media. So it's actually been healthy for me to take a couple steps back. And that's even more, um, how do I say this? Even more so with the, the step back, it ensures me that I made the right decision by stepping away when I did. Mm. So I don't have times where I really am jonesing to get back under the bar and get in competition, mode. I still lift every week. I still live with my people, but it's lowered down about three notches. So now I'm, I'm worried about still lifting enough to give my body the, the stimulation it needs. I'm worried. I'm worried about lowering my body weight down slowly, but it's going to be a process with as long as I've been lifting heavy and the muscle that I have, it's going to be a process to, to get my body weight down, but I need to get it down for the, for my health. And so that's the new goal. Got to have a new goal. What's when that ends, you got to have a new goal. Now mine's general health to stay strong, to stay healthy, to get my cardio up. And so having that new goal to be there for my daughters and to be more functional and to be able to get around is, has helped ease some of that adrenaline let down. Hmm. It's, it's always going to be there. I'm always going to chase that adrenaline. Hmm. To give you an example, I sunk my truck. I have a Ford Raptor, and I sunk my truck in the mud last week because I was chasing adrenaline driving through a mud bog and ended <laughs> up having extra rain in there. So I sunk it and had to get it pulled out, and I'm still cleaning it up now and getting it back running. But I need to find things like that that are going to be a little bit better to my body. Now, granted, it could be harder on my wallet, so that's another uh, issue that I could be facing. But I, I, I continue to find things that, that keep me occupied that will help me distance myself from that adrenaline addiction because it was an addiction competing and all that stuff was also an, an unhealthy addiction at times. Mm. Well, you, you fell in love with that, that sport and the competition and everything about it. What, what are you in love with now when it comes to helping people achieve what it is they, they want to achieve? I really enjoy problem solving with other people, not so much with myself, Right now, I'm working on problem solving with the truck, and that's with everything being so electrical now, and and all of these fuses, and uh, it's just it's a lot. But if it's someone else, I like to help you know talk them through it, assess them. So taking on people that 
are like me in 2012 and 13 that are facing, hey, I can't pick my baby up out of my crib. My back hurts. Or I want to get back to lifting again. I have some clients in their 60s that are squatting 600 pounds. So I can live vicariously through some of these young guys, too, that are trying to hit big numbers. And I I sell them, okay, do your core work. Move well. Don't train heavy all the time. Back off before you're forced to. Um, Different things like that. I can live vicariously through them. And now that's uh, that's helped me stay focused and get enjoyment through that without destroying my body. Yeah. Well, there. I want to finish with a couple of uh, quick questions, just um, just around that what you just mentioned, which is, you know, what's what's kind of the the model or belief system you have for training now that you sort of Im- impress upon younger. Um, athletes that maybe wasn't there when you were growing up, like you were coming along and your interpretation was you just had to lift heavier and do more and and more volume and all the different things that went with that. Is there a different, do you have a different philosophy about that that you share with those guys now that's maybe a healthier way of achieving the same thing? Yeah. So I have my philosophy, 1020 life. It's a, it's a strength training book. I just did a video series on it, about 15 parts on YouTube, and I'm basically giving my book away. I'm walking through it. It's not every part, but explaining my general philosophy, and a lot of this will help younger lifters avoid the same mistakes I made. Have a purpose for everything you do, both your warm-up and your assistance work. Have different phases of training so you're not pushing hard all the time. Have times where you're chilling and coasting a little bit, working on weak points, have deloads before you're absolutely forced to and you're bedridden. Go light sometimes. Have periods where you go light every three or four weeks. Work on your form and nail your form. Have perfect form for your specific body type and your sport of choice and your goal. Um, not being so concerned with what you're doing this week and next week and this month, but look at things in, in years to five years at a time. Where do you want to be? Not next year. But build your micro goals to, to build your macro goals over five years or so. I was so consumed with what I could do this year and this meet, nothing else mattered. But having a, a, a being more mature and looking back, I have this perspective. So I try to impart the wisdom on the younger people. Look, you, you might have two meets ahead of you over the next 10 years, or you might have 20. You might be done in two in two in two meets or 20 meets, but regardless, do the best that you can, but don't rush the process. Enjoy the struggles. Enjoy working on getting better. Enjoy the successes. Enjoy the failures. Don't let your highs be too high and don't let your lows be too low. Unfortunately, in powerlifting, your highs will never be as high as your lows are low. It hurts when it's low. Your highs are few and far between. When you get to a certain level, you're not going to achieve greatness in world records and have perfect outings all the time. I mean, you can look at it, look at it with the uh, UFC you can look at it like a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. You can have a Cy, Cy Young, um, Cy Young Award winner, you know, come out five times in a row and have a total flop of an outing, not making it out of three innings. They reset for a bit, they come back, and they win ten games in a row. So you can't look at it just in the short burst. You have to have a long perspective of where you want to go and what you want to do, and don't get so caught up in having a little bit of a rut. 
or having some failures in a row, learn from it. Learn from the mistakes you made. Like I said at the beginning, that's one of the biggest reasons why I was successful is I didn't quit. I didn't quit when it got hard. I didn't quit when I hurt my back. I didn't quit when I got my ass kicked. I didn't quit when I hit world records. I kept learning and evolving. Even though a lot of the people would say I was stubborn and I was not open to suggestion, that 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 same mindset, I did listen to suggestion when I felt was appropriate. But at the same time, that same vision of, of me being successful no matter what is what helped me be successful. It also contributed to my downfalls. Mm-hmm. So uh, just learning from what you're doing and, and not quitting. And it sounds a little bit like a rah-rah, you know, cheerleading thing, you know, at the, at the end of this. But not quitting but adapting is what the key is. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that finish. Um, last question. You know, if you were to run into – Brian Carroll in 1999, when you're starting your competitive powerlifting journey and you had a coffee with him, what you, what would you say to that guy? You need to gain some weight. No, um, <laughs> you need to get bigger. You need to shut your mouth. I, I would say, I would say be a sponge, be less of a rock, you know, less of a rock, be more of a sponge and take your time. I know that's repeating what I said in the last, the last question, the last talk, but take your time build out the foundation and good things will come. But I want to say that when I first started powerlifting, I never expected to achieve a thousand pound squat and a 2,730 pound total. I, I had an email address that said, Brian Carroll, 2,100. That's what I wanted to achieve one day. I wanted to squat 800. I wanted to total 28, uh, 2,100, which would have been an 800 squat, a 600 deadlift and a 700, 600 bench and 700 deadlift or something like that. That's all I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I uh, think big, think big, but also be real, realistic when you assess yourself, your body type, your structure. I mean, we want people to think big, but we also want them to be realistic. Meaning when I was coming out of high school, I don't think that I should have listened to someone if they're telling me that I should try to be a basketball center. You know what I mean? At five, at five foot nine. So you have to be realistic to your body proportions, but at the same time, you got to dream big, got to dream mm-hmm. big, got to think big. And uh, don't let people tell you, you can't do something. I had people tell me all the time that I'd never squat a thousand, never squat 11, 12 or 13. So use that as fuel in your gas tank to keep you going in the direction you want to go. Don't let people sidetrack you with their opinions. Now, if you respect them, like Dr. McGill said, you need to back off, you need to reset. Then when you, you got to compromise sometimes with someone like that and say, okay, I'm going to listen to you, but just know when we get to the point that you say we need to get to, I'm going to reboot things again. I'm going to go after it. So knowing when to back off and knowing when to push is, is an art to everything. It's an art to negotiating. It's an art to training. It's an art to business. And uh, I'm still learning those things. But if I could have learned that a little bit early on, I probably wouldn't have listened anyway. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have listened, honestly. I was more That's- of a rock instead of a sponge. I'm a little bit more of a sponge now. That's awesome. That's a great way to finish, Brian. Thank you for your time. It's been nice to unpack your story, and I'm sure there's a lot of value there for my listenership, and I I appreciate you taking the time with me today. Scott, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at Kimo Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.